I'm Tommy Salmons. This is year zero. Oh, pardon the noises. I'm going through a construction zone right now. Uh, I don't even know if y'all can hear all that. But it's quite bumpy. I was, I've been, I've been thinking a lot, and I, I got in a conversation with a guy um, a while back. It wasn't a really long conversation, but he. He brought up the fact that only reactionaries have to change their their mindset. Now, let me I'm going to draw the the outline for you of what was being discussed. And in in, a, in kind of a vague way, because I don't remember exactly what we what exactly I was saying, but generally somebody was defending Bernie Sanders and I said, well, you know, look, a lot of pro- a lot of people have a problem with Bernie Sanders' affinity for for communism and his uh, his apologies that he's made over the over the years, his his apologetic stance that he's had over the years, going to the Soviet Union in the late '80s for his honeymoon, and then talking about how wonderful the Soviet Union was even after the uh, after all the murder and genocide that had taken place under Stalin pretending like it it did it was nothing but my my concern with Bernie Sanders is beyond that number 1 he doesn't understand economics at all he has no understanding of Economics, And if he does understand it, he just doesn't care. That's number one. But number two, he's the only person I've ever seen that hasn't changed his mind on anything in 40 years. So either he's the only perfectly knowledgeable individual in the world, or he just refuses to learn. And either way, I'm just not okay with that. Because there's no such thing as a perfectly knowledgeable individual. And refusal to learn is, is a major problem. Because that, that means no matter what mistakes you make or what you do, you'll never correct those errors of the past. And it reminded me of a, of a quote I'd heard, and I'm not sure where the quotes from or who said it but the quote was the only thing that people learn have learned from history is that people don't learn from history and that seems to be the case if you when when people are bringing up the idea and I'm going to get back to the whole reactionary idea here in a second just give me a second my mind is kind of I, I still haven't woke up good. I didn't even get real coffee today, so I'm I'm kind of a I've been wanting to talk about some of these ideas and thoughts that I've been having, and I'm trying to put them together in such a way that they kind of mesh together into um, an actual conversation and an actual 
um, thought a stream of thought that makes sense um, tied together. So just bear with me, please. Um, so so if you if you look at like the outrage that people have with Donald Trump, let's say, and they'll say things like Donald Trump is the worst president the United States has ever had. And my, my question is always based upon what metric. What metric are you basing this analysis on? Right? FDR's New Deal handed power over to corporations at the expense of average citizens. Woodrow Wilson got the United States involved in World War One for no good reason. And he signed into law the Federal Reserve Act, giving birth to the Federal Reserve, which has caused more economic hardship than absolutely necessary uh, to date. If you look at since 1913, and the development of the Federal Reserve, the dollar has lost 96% of its, of its value, of its spending power. Since 1971, in the abandonment of the gold standard, the dollar has lost around 82% of its spending power. And I was talking to my dad the other day, and my dad is... He's kind of a, I'd say he's kind of Buchananite in ways. He, he, he has this paleo streak to him. Um, and, but you can't really paint him into a corner. If you bring up a good, good point, he'll, he'll definitely like uh, look at what you're saying. He's not stuck in this um, thought process of of conservatism as you might as you might think it is he he tries to think these things through he's he's taken economics classes he's he's kind of a a Milton Friedman um, maybe a Hayek kind of thinker when it comes to economics he he is leans much more in a free market direction um, with the acceptance that this is how it's always been, at least as long as he's been alive. And so we were talking about the economy and um, just money in general and how money has lost its value. And I brought up to him, I said, well, I was like, it's, it's funny. I was like, cause it's like, rec- people don't recognize this, that, that inflation is, not the the value of money changing that's that's not what inflationary policy is inflationary policy is in reference to inflating the money supply and increasing the amount of of money that is um flowing through the public sector and what it does is it actually uh decreases the spending power of that money because it's a simple supply and demand argument. It's the greater supply, 
the the less demand, so therefore the less value that that money has. Okay, so when you look at the most impoverished people in America, and rightfully so, people will point out where they're like the top one percent in uh, of the wealthiest people to ever live on this earth. But that's because they have more things and uh, access to to more services, and they have more of this fiat currency, this this really worthless paper in their pocket, and so that's why they have outlawed uh, counterfeiting because you you continue to flood the market with um with this fiat currency and uh it it increases the supply and therefore it decreases the demand due to an abundance of the supply so therefore the value of this money has has dropped has has fallen uh significantly and it's going to continue to happen and and he was like yeah it, and a lot of it's due to quantitative easing. I was like, well, that's that's a euphemism. It's it's a it's a term to cover up an inflationary monetary policy. All that is is uh, a liquidation of assets. Um, I, I think Dave Smith has rightfully pointed out that if you look at prior to 2008, the uh, Federal Reserve had somewhere around 800 billion dollars. On their books, liquidated assets on their books, and today they have over four trillion. Or when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, it was over four trillion. So I mean, you can you can see in that just in that aspect, just that one statistic, how it would be. There's a, there's a higher supply, so therefore there would be a less less demand for it um, or a less need for it. I mean, people still demand money because money's required to live. So the demand's going to be there, but to what extent um, is it going to be there? And <clears throat> as the value, it, it seems like it's a, it really seems like it's an interesting thing to look at when when you see the value of the dollar decreases and, and the demand for dollars do temporarily increase, but at some point that dollar is worth so little that people stop demanding that dollar. And you're starting to see that a lot more in today's, today's age because people are spending a lot more of their dollars investing it in real money like gold. And when you look at the the price of gold in 1913 was was $20 an ounce and the price of gold today is somewhere around $1250 an ounce, right? But in 1913 what would that ounce of gold buy you? It would buy you a custom-tailored suit and a really nice pair of dress shoes. 
And today, an ounce of gold will buy you a really nice custom tailored suit and a really nice pair of dress shoes. So when you have real money and it's actually based in something of intrinsic value, something that has this, this ability to be used in so many different ways and, ha- and s- serves so many different functions for an individual. Something that when you melt it down, it doesn't lose any of its composition. That you can reshape it and mold it and never lose anything, any, any of the value that, that is involved in the comp- chemical composition that makes up this substance. When you have something of that nature, then it doesn't have a, a, it, it doesn't get devalued over the years. And that when you look at something as simple as me as a truck driver, when I would go to a cat scale and I would weigh my truck just two years ago, it cost me $10 to weigh my truck. But I go there today and it cost me $11.50. So what happened there is the value of the weight and, and, and having this information worth more? Or is the money worth less? You can even go something as simple as a Coke, uh, a 12 ounce Coke in the 20s cost a nickel. And today a 12 ounce Coke costs you around 79 cents, right? So is the Coke worth more today than it was? Or is the money worth less? And when you look at things that are not necessarily intervened upon on a mass scale, you start noticing that the price is actually dropping and it naturally decreases because you have a greater supply of these things. So what is what 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 causes the the decrease the decreasing of value of the dollar is the intervention into the creation of that dollar. Whenever each state or each bank was printing their own, you know, notes, repository notes for gold, well, those, that the value of that, those notes were dependent upon each individual bank. And when they introduced the fractional reserve system is when they had that that split and then they they had the bank run and they could no longer they couldn't pay out all the gold that people were coming to collect due to the fact that they had created this fractional reserve system so they only had to keep a fraction of the money on their books as a reserve right so it's always easily explained that if I were to deposit $100 and they could loan out $90 of that to somebody else. Now, their books 
still show that I have $100 in the bank, but there's only $10 there. They've taken that other $90, they've loaned it to somebody else. And that somebody else has deposited it. So now their books show $190 in the bank. But what they've done is they've loaned out, they've, they've actually created a deficit within their own system of $90. Now, let's say they borrow out another 90% of my money, which means they borrow out the nine, $9 of my money, and then they borrow out $80 of what this other guy had, had loaned from them. They loan it out, right? So now they're back down or will it be $89? So now they're back down to $10 in reserves on what their books show is um, nine, 10, 190. And then these people, um, these people create deposits. So that increases it to 199 and then another 89. That increases it to 279. So their books are now showing $279, but they actually only have $100 within their system. You see what I'm saying? And it, when it keeps breaking down that way and they keep, they keep loaning out 90% of each individual account, it continues to create this illusion of more money within the system, right? So when they had that bank run, they only had a fraction of what their books actually showed. So these people think, well, I have $130 in the account or whatever, but they only had, you know, 20 bucks in there. Everything else had been loaned out. So they couldn't get their money out. Right? So, and this is why whenever you Whenever you look at the Federal Reserve and the fractional reserve banking as a whole, you know, from that from that mass level, you have to realize that most of this money that is showing to be throughout the system, within the system, moving around, is is actually not even there. It's there on the books. And by digitizing the money supply the way they they have since technology has taken over, it's made it a lot easier because nobody's holding a mass amount of physical dollars anymore. You know, um, they've, and then they had to bail out the system because they realized that, and it, in when in bailing out the system, it did serve to some degree the, uh, the lesser of us, the, the average citizen, the blue collar workers, those of us that have to work for a living, they, there was some sort of ensuring that we didn't lose our, our book notes, quote unquote, that are showed to be in our accounts, even though they don't physically exist in our account. There was, there was a degree of okay, we are saving these people and they had to sell it to us as we're bailing, bailing by bailing out these banks, we're actually saving you a massive heartache, which is true to an account. 
But who really benefited from that? Who did they really bail out? Who was really going to lose their ass? Right? It was going to be the bankers. It was going to be Wall Street. These were the people that were really going to lose their ass in this whole situation whenever it all started crumbling down. So they, in order, and, and, and so you've seen since this bailout, the centralization of the money supply around places like New York, around Wall Street, and around Washington, D.C. And there's just been this concentration of wealth in these areas. And as this concentration of wealth has taken place, then, then the rest of us can't seem to get ahead. And as they're saying, well, the economy's booming. The economy's doing great. The wealth of the nation, the, the nation has never been well, worth more. You know, like GDP is is beyond our wildest dreams, you know, or whatever fucking fantasy they want to sell us nowadays. But your average citizen, your average person hasn't seen it. It hasn't touched our lives. And people want to blame, well, this just shows that they that the voodoo economics, the trickle down economics doesn't work. Well, actually, what this shows, in all honesty, is that cronyism doesn't work. Or it only works for some people. Whenever they took our tax dollars, borrowed against those tax dollars, and paid that money back to the people they borrowed from, and then they used the tax dollars that they collect every year to pay the interest on the loan that they paid to those people who, where's this, how is that trickle down? That's not trickle down. That's cyclical. Okay. So now you've got this, this running cycle of money that just sits and it just bounces between these areas and it does eventually work its way down into the economy. Right. But the massive scale of printing, the quote unquote quantitative easing, the inflationary monetary policy that is in place that that moves wealth from the banks to Washington back to the back to the CEOs and the Wall Street tycoons. That inflationary policy doesn't actually have negative effects for, you know, six to 18 months by the time that money has already cycled through the economy and trickled down to you or I, to the average worker. And so when it gets to the average worker, the devaluation of the currency due to the increased money supply has been recognized by the market and the market has started to adjust, prices began to go up and therefore you never see the, the benefits of the additional money in your pocket because the additional money in your pocket doesn't go near as far today as it would have gone 
just 10, 15 years ago, right? And what the real scam of this is, is that when they're printing this money, and as it's hitting the hands of bankers and politicians and CEOs and Wall Street, Wall Street tycoons, the money hasn't been recognized by the market. It hasn't adjusted to an inflation of the money supply at this point. So as they're spending this money and spending it into the economy and, and through the market, it's actually spending at a at a increased value than what it actually should be due to the increased supply because the increased supply hasn't been recognized it had worded, worked its way through the economy for the economy to make the proper adjustments and so they actually are spending money that is valued at a higher rate than it should be valued as so they're getting the benefit of an additional wealth while by the time it hits our pockets, we are getting penalized for the additional supply, right? So when people say, well, these reactionaries, they traditionally spoke about the conservatives, that is a traditional like point of view of a reactionary. It's someone who's reacting to changes, right? And they're trying to conserve their, their idea of what the government should be, whether, whether it was in France and it was a monarchy or whether it was prior to the Civil War and they're trying to push it back towards a more constitutionalist government, whether it was in 1789 and they're trying to push it back towards and conserve the Articles of Confederation, whether it was prior to the Great Depression and they're trying to push it back to the times of, of slavery by, by uh, instituting Jim Crow and uh, segregation laws, whether it was after the New Deal, and they're trying to turn back the fascist corporatist policies of FDR that benefited the corporations, or whether it was in the 80s when they just want to go back to the New Deal. So this conservatism is a reaction. It's a pull. It's a drawback. It's never... Um, it's never a full drawback in, in the political sense of the term. Now, you'll hear some people discuss this in, well, what we need is to get back to the Constitution. Like, you will hear people say that. And I tell them, we were never at the Constitution. We never lived in a constitutional republic it wasn't two years after the Constitution was drafted and signed and, and, and Washington had taken the office of the president that he began to violate the, the, the limits of power in place in the Constitution. The, 
the uh was it was it Adams that that signed the Alien and Sedition Act? A complete violation of the Constitution. The Constitution was never what you make it out to be. You have this idea of what it should have been, but that's all it was ever was an idea of what should be. But it was never a strict set of rules and regulations that limited government power in order to preserve individual rights. But when people are discussing reactionary policies or reactionaries in a political level, they're typically referring to the conservatives. And so when this guy said, well, only reactionaries need to change their mind and learn. I said, by your definition in this conversation, what is a reactionary? And I asked him this with a purpose, and he didn't answer. He just disappeared. And I don't know if he just thought I was being a retard and I was being stupid about the whole fucking thing. But I seriously wanted him to describe what his idea of a reactionary is. And the reason I wanted him to describe what his idea of a reactionary is, is because in today's society, in the 21st century, when we have seen totalitarian regimes come and go throughout the 20th century, throughout the 19th century, when we've seen the Constitution not bind anybody, not stop anything from happening, and imperialism just continues to spread through this American society as if it's a normal thing, that no constraints written down in the 19th century can stop this, or in the 18th century, sorry, can stop this. That it doesn't matter what, what side of the government you are asking to give aid and comfort. That either way, whether you are a conservative or you are a progressive, you are reacting to something that is happening, happening around you. And therefore, you are a re reactionary. You are not taking action. You are not acting. You are not. Okay, so there's this. There's this. When you're taking jujitsu, there's this really uncomfortable position to be in. When, there, when somebody has you in a rear naked choke. And your first instinct is to try to turn into their forearm. Because it feels like it's looser on that on that on that side, because their bicep is pushing into one side of your neck, so you're trying to turn away from that pressure coming into that one side of your neck. So you go in. You're trying to get into the forearm, and that is like a natural thought because you're like, "There's relief right here. There's relief right here, and if I can move over there, that relief is going to." It's going to allow me to breathe and think and then, then act accordingly, right? 
And typically, and what usually happens is when somebody turns into that forearm, they turn their chin in that direction, like trying to put their chin in that person's elbow, the crook of their elbow. What then happens is the person that has the choke on you squeezes. And when they squeeze, that forearm flexes too. And suddenly you got this forearm flexing in one side of your throat and the bicep flexing in the other side of your throat. Your air passage is getting cut off. You can't breathe and you go out. And it only takes like three to five seconds. It's really quick. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to turn into the choke. And by that, they mean the pressure's coming from that bicep. You feel, you're feeling that bicep on your neck. And that's what's causing you a lot of discomfort. And where your chin is at that particular moment is, is, is not going to protect you completely. But it is what's saving you at this moment. And what you want to do is you want to turn your chin into that bicep. And you want to separate your neck from the bicep using your chin. And you, so you're turning into their armpit. And they call that turning into the choke. And the reason they call it turning into the choke, because it usually gets tighter before it gets looser. But when you get to that full position of where you've turned your head and you've gotten your chin between that bicep and your neck, then all you have is pressure on your mouth and your face. And there's no more choke happening. And that's what, and nobody wants to turn into the choke, right? Everybody wants to turn away from the choke. So whether it's the, <clears throat> whether it's the, the conservatives on healthcare saying, no, 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 we just need to get the government to do this. And if the government would do this and they would, they would open up the market on, um, on the healthcare industry in order to allow pharmaceuticals to be, or insurance to be sold across state lines, that would, that would, uh, that would solve the problem. There's relief there because then you're, you're competing within the market. And that's not a completely horrible idea. It's not opening up the market in, in that way to allow the insurance companies to sell insurance across state lines isn't a horrible idea. And the Democrats are all saying, no, 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 no. We need more government intervention. We need the government to further take control of these insurance markets, further regulate these insurance markets, possibly become the only insurance market and monopolize the market for itself. And therefore, the people can vote on the insurance idea, the ideas of insurance, which, okay, there is some logic to thinking if you believe which a lot of Democrats believe. There's some logic to thinking that your vote, your, your, by giving the government power over uh, an industry somehow makes that industry more 
more susceptible to your influence because then you can vote and you your your uh, politicians are representing you and so they have to go in there and hold these people accountable for your benefit and if you are one of these people that believe we are the government then okay there's some amount of logic to that but not, neither of them neither of them says wait a second why do we have to have insurance to treat a cold? Like, what is what has created such an atmosphere to make it to where to just go to the doctor and have a sinus infection looked at? I have to have insurance for that. Why? Why is that even? Why is that even a thing? Shouldn't insurance be for the worst possible things? Like if I get cancer or have a heart attack or I need a major surgery? And why is it that I look at the cell phone or technological industries or even LASIK surgery and the prices are going down as the technology gets better? The prices keep dropping. But when you look at the healthcare industry, the prices keep getting higher. What's causing that? Nobody wants to look at that. Nobody's asking those questions. Nobody's asking what has happened over the last 40 years to create this, this type of environment. And if you draw back 40 years, you find that over 40 years, over this period, the government has become more and more and more interventionist within this system, within the healthcare system. And that as the government becomes more and more involved in the healthcare system, the prices get higher and higher. That the more government is regulated, the more the government has um, put itself in, in a position of partnership with these pharmaceutical companies, the more that the government has put pressure on doctors and insurance companies, that the costs increase dramatically making it so that the average person can't afford to go to the doctor without insurance. Whereas in the 90s, I didn't have insurance. I still don't have insurance today. And in the 90s, when I would go to the doctor for something, it cost me about, I don't know, 40 bucks. I'd go to the doctor, it was like $40. They charged me $40. They'd write me a prescription. I'd go to the pharmacy. I'd spend 10, 12 bucks, $15 on, you know, a generic prescription, get it filled. And that was that. And I didn't, I'm not a person that goes to the doctor very often. I don't get sick very often. I haven't been to the doctor since like minus like physicals and shit like that for work. But 
for for an illness i haven't been to the doctor since probably 2005 something like that i just don't go to the doctor i just you know i'll figure it out i have a i have a pretty strong immune system and you know if i start if i start feeling bad i know what to do i, I can i'll go to the doctor but why is it now that if i were to do that without insurance it's going to cost me i don't know 90 bucks to see a doctor and then when i go fill the prescription it's going to cost me another 70 or 80 dollars what happened it certainly isn't a free market healthcare system, right? But the reaction to the increasing of prices, to the increasing of insurance prices, to to all these issues, whether it's whether it's the increase of of college education or the the increase to uh, mass shootings or the increase to um, Healthcare costs, whatever, whatever the issue is, whatever the problem is, the reaction of the statist, of the reactionaries, both left and right, is to ask the government to help. I saw a post the other day that basically said, uh, uh, it had uh, the mayor of uh, of a city in Mexico being drugged behind a truck because the roads hadn't been fixed. And somebody said, uh, yeah, the mayor of Houston needs to be aware there's an election coming up. And I'm like, yeah, it's really strange that these people just didn't stop giving the government their money, pull their resources together and fix the streets on their own. Like that never crossed your mind? Because the reactionary view is to turn to government to fix the problem, to solve the problem. And what's worse is in most of these situations, you're asking the government to solve a problem they've either, either created or contributed to by their actions prior to the problem being being recognizable. So whenever somebody is talking about reactionary politics, I'm thinking you're the one asking the state to fix a problem that didn't exist 30 years ago. Why don't we look at why it didn't exist 30 years ago and it exists today? Apparently, the solution is, is to, to get rid of whatever created it. But the reactionary position is, well, there's this problem. You need to fix it. The paternalism of the state must come in and nurture my childlike mind and my dependent lifestyle on this state. So naturally, we have to start looking at, okay, I'm gonna rephrase that because I think I was coming across a little bit 
different. I, I wouldn't come across the way I wanted to come across. I wouldn't say naturally. Okay. So what I'm, what I'm suggesting is to begin to look at the left and right in this country, whether progressive or conservative, as mirror images of themselves, right? And if you talk to any quote-unquote constitutionalist or conservative that says, well, this is what we must do to solve this problem. And then you bring up a similar problem to a progressive. They're going to say, this is what we must do to solve this problem. Neither of them are reflecting on what did the government do to create the problem or contribute to the problem. Yet both of them have the same exact thing. We must react to this problem and solve it. And so my, what I am trying to, to get across is that when the progressives say that there is no true left party in the United States, they are more right than they believe in both definitions of the word. And whenever the conservatives complain about leftists, they just don't know what the hell they're fucking talking about. Because the only leftists in the United States are libertarians and anarchists. Nobody in the progressive movement is a leftist. Tulsi Gabbard is on the right. She is interested in conserving the power of the government. Bernie Sanders is on the right. He is interested in conserving and expanding the power of the government. Donald Trump is on the right. He is interested in conserving and expanding the powers of the government. Those of us on the left have to begin to recognize what it actually means to be on the left and be on the right. And to actually have a, a full understanding of the terms left and right from a historical context. And to point out to these democratic socialists that, well, what you're suggesting is a reactionary policy, is, is reactionary to the current atmosphere and to, to preserve and protect the power of the government in the face of this, this troublesome experience that your interest is not to pro progress in any meaningful way, uh, in meaningful definition of the word. Your, your idea of progression or progressivism is to progress and expand the powers of government.
in what has been happening for the entire existence of this nation or this country or whatever you want to call it. It's been the complete expansion of power and centralization of power to the government. So there's no progress in any meaningful sense of the word. Your idea of progress is to take power over those that disagree with you. Just as conservatives' idea of conserving is to take power over those that disagree with them. And so the real problem that, that we have in this country is the idea that there's so much power centralized that people feel like they have to fight over control of that power. And the only true solution to this is the decentralization of power, which will probably only come through economic collapse or secession or both. So I just had this, these ideas on my mind and I just wanted to really touch on the, the idea of the interventionism of the United States, not only overseas and in foreign policy, not only through the use of the intelligence agencies and the CIA, but in the average person's life and how it has created such an atmosphere of reactionary politics that everybody is begging for the state to take more control. Whereas when you go back prior to these problems, ugly heads popping up in our society, we realize that, hey, this was prior to any kind of social or economic um, engineering of the society, at least at the scale that we see it now. And when you look back at Rome or you look at Germany or Italy or Venezuela even recently, or you look at Cuba or uh, the Soviet Union or, or China, North Korea, tell me in what situation, in which case did the engineering of society socially and or economically ever turn out well for the citizens or the country. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.